should never write about ordinary people, because I'm not in the least interested in them. And without interest, there can be no art. Man's relation to man does not captivate my fancy. It is man's relation to the cosmos, to the unknown, which alone arouses in me the spark of creative imagination. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a view Just an old second-hand man He'll buy your old days from you He will take every sorrow Of the day that is through And he'll bring you tomorrow Just to start life Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an almost regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Yeah, we have been getting it out almost every two weeks for a while. I mean, we're going to screw that up this week. This one's going Al- to be... Almost certainly. Yeah. Now I've said that. Now I've dared to say... Yeah, well, I mean, we're recording two days before this is supposed to go out. Unless, you know, unless you, you manage to edit this at Keeper Dan speeds, we're not going to get this out for Tuesday. Well, no man can, can parallel Keeper Dan. <laughs> it's almost like saying those immortal words, don't roll a one. Yeah. Or give me a D20 for some loss. You know what's going to happen. Whoop, whoop, flashing light. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> so I have some reassuring news for you, Matt. And, and for you also, Scott. Uh-oh. Yeah. I know you're not going to Gen Con, though, Scott. Well, I don't think you are. But I, I, know, I, I don't know think I am myself either. Myself and Matt are. Now, there's this controversial uh, freedom to freedom of religious right to, uh, to discriminate against people in Indian, Indianapolis. Yeah, I've been keeping it's just, an eye just on it. come out, and I was anxious about a certain steakhouse. Oh, right. We don't yes. want to be. We want to be making sure that we're going to places which. Uh, exercise of a right to serve everybody freely and equally so so st elmo's is glbt friendly yes i checked it up this afternoon and they said they are happy to you know take basically to take everybody's money they're they're, they're quite happy you know they're not going to turn you away so that's good i'm gonna have my big hunk of meat after all the the triumph of capitalism over bigotry (laughs) (laughs) absolutely we just need to check on fogo to chow now yeah well you know it's one winner anyway. Oh, we, yeah, the, the big one. On the next yeah. one. Then we'll have that in the next podcast, an update on places where you can eat <laughs> large amounts and not feel bad about it. Well, you're sure your bank balance can. But... Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's good news. And what other good news have we got? Oh, well, the big good news is this is our 50th episode. Holy crap! Yay! Hooray! <laughs> My God, that sounded very pretty. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> I say... Well, we could have gone for a proper hip hip hooray, but let's huzzah, <laughs> huzzah, huzzah! Yes. Time flies. Yeah, who would have thought we'd have got to fifty episodes in almost two years? Right, just under two years, I think. Yeah, we started in June of twenty thirteen. Ah, oh, back okay. in the shed. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. the shed. This is also throwing me again. Slightly different intro. And different room. Oh yeah, we're in a different room in my house. Yeah, we've we've shifted recording studios by about ten to fifteen feet. Yeah, my wife and I have moved to a smaller bedroom just so that the, the master bedroom can be converted into the the sound studio. And that's not quite true, but 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 this room's got carpeted floors, so the acoustics might be even better. It is bigger though, so maybe slightly echoier and possible road noise, but 
Seems well, okay so far. We'll find out. We will. <laughs> this being our 50th episode, we thought we'd do something special. In his house at Rillier, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. H.P. Lovecraft wrote those words in 1926. 89 years later, Lovecraft's influence can be seen across the wide spectrum of our culture in games, fiction, films, comics, music, soft toys, and daily internet memes. In this episode, we're going to explore who was H.P. Lovecraft, how has his legacy been passed down to what it has become today, and what we think it might become in the future. Part of the reason we're doing this is it sort of occurred to us that there are a lot of people who've got into the mythos and Lovecraft through gaming. And we've met you know, a lot of people at the gaming table over the years who've played Call of Cthulhu, who've played it for a long time, but maybe, maybe never read any Lovecraft, maybe never read any of the ancillary material, or maybe even just know Cthulhu through you know, cuddly toys and stuff like that. So we thought we'd, we'd go back to the roots and explain what some of the stuff actually is. This isn't going to go into a great deal of depth about any one of these particular topics because we've got nine decades of material to cover. We're just going to skim lightly across the surface but try and give you an overview of the whole thing. In fact, we may go into some of these topics in more depth for subsequent episodes. So if you like the sound of some of the things you hear, you know, wait around for a couple of months and we might get around to explaining what the hell we mean. Or go and read a book. <laughs> oh, was that too harsh? That, that is, yeah. yeah. That's, that's a step too far, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's just getting drastic. Yeah, okay. I was just going to suggest if you want help, if you want tips on the cuddly toys, I can provide them. <laughs> and now we start off with a look at Lovecraft himself. Okay, if we're thinking about Lovecraft, let's start at the beginning. Who was he? He was born in 1890 in Providence in New England. In 1893, his father was uh, confined in a straitjacket and taken to an asylum. He died a few years later, so Lovecraft was only seven or eight years old when his father died. And that was syphilis, wasn't it? It was diagnosed syphilis. He, I mean, having read something about Lovecraft, he seems to have been extremely gifted as a child academically. Well, maybe not academically. I mean, he didn't actually attend much school, uh, but he seems to have been quite a good autodidact. Yeah, intellectually then, perhaps rather than academic achievement. But, yes, um, yeah, because he, he didn't even graduate high school. No, he kind of dropped out, I think. So he, he left high school without a, a certificate. Yes, and his, his learning was very patchy. I mean, he taught himself a lot of stuff about myths and legends, about uh, some of the sciences, but his ambitions of, of wanting to follow a career in the sciences were completely let down by the fact that he didn't know any maths. But he was particularly interested in astronomy, chemistry, Greek myths, and so yeah. forth. Interesting mix between classics and science. That's a really good point, actually, an interesting mix between classics and science, because that's very much reflect. those two aspects are very much reflected in a lot of his work. Mm -hmm. his, his grandfather, Whipple Phillips, kind of maybe acted as something of a father replacement, a father figure, uh, but he also died in 1904, uh, by which time Lovecraft was just a teenager, which precipitated the loss of Lovecraft's home, his family home had to be sold, and from that point on, I think they were in something of a descending spiral of, um, well, not, not absolute poverty, but not the kind of wealth that he was used to. So he was, during his later years, he was reduced to quite a, a meagre income, I think, and, and his diet reflected that. So part of his early death was attributed to a poor diet. 
Yes, apparently he lived on crackers and tin beans and so on, which wasn't uh, a particularly healthy diet. In 1914, he joined the Amateur Press Association. This was a, a, a body of maybe a few hundred, I think. It was a fairly limited number of uh, American enthusiasts who were interested in writing short stories and articles. But it was a very uh, supportive network of people. And it seemed to play a big role in getting him out of his shell. Because he'd, he'd been a very reclusive child. He'd uh, avoided going to school for much of his life. He hadn't been properly socialised, really. And this brought him out into the larger world and introduced him to a lot of other people. And he was 24 at that point. So the kind of area between um, reaching adulthood at you know, 18 and, and, and that 24 seems to be a bit of a dark age. He seems to have just become a bit of a recluse and not done too much during that period. Yeah, he described himself as having had uh, a breakdown at that stage. And from the sounds of it, he did have fairly serious problems with depression, uh, particularly during that time. And that spirit of communicating with his peers and encouraging and fostering talent and sharing with, with other people was very much reflected in his writing in that um, not his writing of fiction, but his writing of letters. He's attributed with writing something between 75,000 and 100,000 letters, which, if you do the maths, is more than five letters a day and for these, his whole life. And these aren't short letters. No. these are Some of these are pages and pages. Yeah, there, there are still uh, a large number of collections of his letters out there publicly available. And, yeah, if you read through those, some of them are you know, quite scholarly. A lot of them lay down the foundations of what his work would become. A lot of them have got story ideas in there. Uh, and and they sort of cement very much who Lovecraft was. His mother died in 1921, so he was then uh, around 30. Um, he met Sonia, uh, his wife. Sonia Green. Sonia Green. Uh, they married and moved to New, New York. So this was his first time living outside of Providence, and he found New York highly objectionable. Yes, it seemed to bring out the worst in him. Uh, it was a combination, I think, of financial pressures, the fact that he couldn't find work, and it really seemed to bring out his xenophobia, being confronted after growing up in a very, uh, a very white, very middle-class Providence. Suddenly being confronted with people from cultures all around the world seemed to very much bring out the worst racist elements in him, and his correspondence and his stories from that time really reflect this. He seems to have seen himself as a, not even as a 1920s gentleman, but as a maybe an 18th century gentleman. Uh, and he, he harks back to that period in, in many ways. In, in some of his writing, he uses archaic, not just uh, a range of unusual words, but some archaic spellings in some of his words. So S, instead of saying show, he uses shoe, S-H-E-W, yeah. which often his editors would then correct. But, uh, you know, well, and also, you and also the fact that he tended to use English rather than American spellings, even, you know, after Webster's Dictionary had come out. So, for example, The Colour Out of Space, you know, the, the title of it, that's the English spelling of colour there. Mm. Most of what we would probably view as his, his greater works are written in the, the late 20s and 30s. He died in 1937 of Bright's disease and cancer of the small intestine, Bright's disease being some kind of kidney problem, and as I said, largely attributed to poor diet. So he died at the young age of 47. 
Scott and I are looking rather depressed at that thought. <laughs> yes, we both outlived him and hadn't accomplished anything like what he did. <laughs> no. There's time yet, Scott. There's time yet. Mm. There's time, but not much hope, really. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do the maths. You, 16, you've got 16 years, years to go. Yes. No, you've got time. I, not for that I haven't. I've barely managed to find time to write. Oh, you've got 16 years, I've got minus two. Stop whinging. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the work of Lovecraft that was published in his lifetime was published in Weird Tales magazine, with very few exceptions. Uh, Herbert West Reanimator and The Mountains of Madness were published in other journals. But Weird Tales was his, his spiritual home. There was only one book publication in his lifetime. Uh, there was a very short run, I believe something like 200 copies of The Shadow of Rinsmith, which was a 30,000-word novella, so not a big book. And that was the only time in his entire lifetime that his work saw print in book form. The rest of it was in these disposable pulp magazines, and Lovecraft almost certainly died thinking himself a failure. And it's interesting to note that, that Weird, Weird Tales, a, uh, a kind of pulp magazine with um, strange uh, science fiction and, and horror stories in it that you might find on the newsstand fairly cheap was began in 1923 only a scant few years before Lovecraft started being published in it so prior to that yeah you know, I guess there were other publications but uh, that was very much his platform mm, and I think even during his lifetime his name became pretty well synonymous with weird tales he, he was certainly one of the biggest writers the weird tales had but Weird Tales was, you know, as a pop magazine, very much in evanescent form. Next, we look at the story, The Call of Cthulhu. Well, we've looked at Lovecraft. What about Cthulhu? The two names are pretty well synonymous. Who is Cthulhu? Well, it was written in 1926 and published in 28 in Weird Tales. The story, The Call of Cthulhu is a rather strange rambling tale. It, it's not like a, a particularly regular narrative story. No, it, it's, it's a very unusual structure. It's, it's divided into three acts. And it's, it's a very sort of passive story, a, uh, a narration of the discovery of certain elements. But it's all recollections of things that have happened and there's no real driving narrative in it. It's sort of, you know, here are all these horrible facts that I've, I've you know, put together. Here are other people's stories. You know, th this is the conclusion I've come to and, oh dear God, it's horrible. Yeah, and each one of those three acts kind of tells a different story. One of a Louisiana swamp uh, cult... Um, and, 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 you know, another one of a sea voyage you know, pieced together by pieces of evidence and so on. It's a little bit like what might happen in a Call of Cthulhu game, vaguely, with the research and so on, but it's not really like the, it's, the, it's not the events really, of a game. Not really, because the narrator, I mean, the actual narrator of the story, not the people he speaks to, the narrator doesn't really do anything other than speak to a few people. Mm. Yeah, even then, it's more of a case of... Um, almost like the worst example of a game, that, oh, you find a box and read about all the cool stuff that people did before you. That, essentially, you're just reading a whole pile of handouts and not really doing any of the action yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's take a look at what Cthulhu himself actually looks like, as described in the story. Well, that requires a D100 sand loss. So, but I'll try, <laughs> but I'll try the next best thing that anyone can possibly uh, try and envision. 
A monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, a rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. This is one of the things that leads to the, the ongoing association of Lovecraft with tentacles. Tentacles! 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 I think most people who've played the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game or have got any idea who Lovecraft and the Cthulhu mythos is, one of the first things that will come to mind uh, if, if they're trying to picture any of this stuff is tentacles. Yeah. D despite the fact that they don't really come into Lovecraft very much, apart from this description. Uh, There's another description where it mentions a kind of octopoid head. Um, oh, I was thinking of the mythos in general. Though. No, no, yeah. absolutely. No, there isn't, there isn't a great deal of tentacles. Yeah, it's, it's much more a... It's much more a, a sort of mythology based around cosmic nihilism than it is about, you know, squidgy things with tentacles. But that is the, the mental image that, you know, I think all of us end up having. And it comes from this, pretty much this line. <laughs> yeah. And Lovecraft uh, does give us a small drawing, a, a small sketch that he, he drew of Cthulhu. Um, it's a fairly rudimentary drawing, but I guess it, you know, it communicates his visual image of, of what Cthulhu looked like. Um, but I guess, you know, sometimes we see images which maybe do it justice, but with a lot of Lovecraft's uh, monsters and gods, very hard to put down on the page. And they kind of maybe lose something of their um, power when somebody tries to depict them. He definitely loses the mystique. Mm. And now we take a look at what exactly we mean when we say the Cthulhu Mythos. We've used this phrase a few times, the Cthulhu Mythos. Now Lovecraft never actually used that phrase himself. When he talked about this sort of loose mythology that he almost accidentally created, or at least started piecing together out of elements from his various stories and the, the cross-references that he started putting in there, he referred to it as Yogg-Sothothri. Uh, the, this idea of the Cthulhu mythos as this codified mythos didn't come from him, it came from August Ehrlich. The Cthulhu mythos, certainly under Lovecraft, wasn't really this this coherent mythology. It was all these you know, vague cross-references and, and names that were shared between different entities and a, a sort of gloomy overall worldview in which mankind is surrounded by beings beyond our comprehension, godlike entities that don't care anything about us. They're not evil. They're not looking to wipe us out. But when we cross paths with them, we tend to come off the worst. Uh, much the same way that, you know, you might get rid of an infestation of ants in your house. You're not doing it because you're some malign, you know, god of the ants or anything like that. It's just there are ants crawling all over the place and they're irritating you a bit. And it has no bearing on the, the Christian mythos. Uh, it has no bearing on religion. When we look at traditional horrors such as vampires and, and werewolves and ghosts and so on, many of these are influenced by you know holy water or the cross or, or whatever. Uh, Lovecraft's works were totally devoid from that in a, in a kind of a scientific rationale. Well, they, they they are at their core pretty much science fiction stories. These creatures are aliens. 
admittedly not totally. Um, there is the one example in Dreams in the Witch House of a cross being used, but I think that is the only use of such imagery in his work. And even then, that's fairly late on in his writing mm. career. Yeah, and but that's also um, a, a witch from uh, the of the 17th century who is suddenly having a metal crucifix shoved in her face and who recoils from it. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily putting the, the same kind of symbolism in there as you'd see in, a say, a... Uh, a uh, ha- uh, <clears throat> Hammer Sorry. Horror Dracula film, yeah. It's, it's much more, I think, visceral than that. But it is, there's a definite lack of such imagery throughout all his work. I think a big part of this scientific rationalist basis for the horror in Lovecraft is the fact that Lovecraft himself was an atheist, he was a rationalist, that he didn't want to base uh, his horror on what he saw as being superstition because that didn't scare him. He wanted to come up with a new type of horror, something that would scare someone like him who who didn't have these religious beliefs. Something that wasn't shackled by dogma, wasn't shackled by the whole baggage that comes with religion. Well, yeah, I think it's more than that, though. It's the fact that, fundamentally, you know, for you know, tales of you know, witchcraft and, and vampires and so on to thoroughly resonate with you, you have to, in some case, be a buy into uh, the whole rationale behind it. If the whole thing is alien to you, then you know it's not going to be desperately scary. Well, all of those horrors, the, the werewolves, the vampires, the ghosts, they, they all, zombies, they all require humans. They are all humans you know that have been uh, corrupted in some way his his creations cthulhu and so on are just things that are ancient before humanity that have come to earth you know eons ago and just happen to still be here and you know human races cropped up and it will be gone again probably before they reawaken maybe but you know the human race has got these artifacts that, that the old ones in lovecraft stories bought down and uh, you know they formed cults around the earth, worshiping these like, these like cargo cults. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that even then attributes man's creation to an experiment that went maybe not wrong, but definitely it was a scientific experiment which bore the creation of mankind. Yeah. Yes. That you know at best were a byproduct. Yeah. With just an infestation that has just spread across the globe and eventually will be wiped out when the time is right. But I guess in game terms, the Cthulhu mythos is a collection of motifs through the various stories. It doesn't, it's not a cohesive thing, but it, as Scott said, it's a, it's a collection of names of books, or, you know, occult tomes. It's a collection of different types of monsters, different types of gods or sort of superior beings, whether they're strictly gods or not is a questionable. Uh, it's a collection of maybe uh, some characters that reoccur and not only not only do they kind of vaguely overlap in a kind of weird Venn diagram way between his stories, also we're going to go on to talk about his contemporaries, but they picked up on some of these things. And another interesting layer in there is that Lovecraft would sometimes uh, reference real world books like The Golden Bough by Fraser, an occult work of the time. Um, and so as as you're reading through these stories, they sound very convincing especially if you think oh i've actually heard you know i've actually got that one on my shelf it's a real book and also he would uh, borrow terms and ideas from other writers so for example you know he makes references to Aklo sometimes that actually comes from arthur Mackin in the first place uh and uh yeah hasta 
uh, comes from Ambrose Bierce. It's, so, it, oh, to see. Um, Sir Thogwell was originally Clark Ashton Smith. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it, it gives the feel of a mythology, just as you know, when you look at real, real world myths, um, it's hard to pin down the root of a myth. You know, they're, they're all kind of. Uh, mixed in and there's bits one from one you know Nordic culture and Germanic culture and you know these these things are hard to unravel and and it kind of created that same kind of weird web of um, you know the Cthulhu mythos and one thing that really helps to cement that feeling is the fact that Lovecraft would sometimes almost contradict himself or at least use terms in inconsistent ways. When Shoggoths appear in you know, at least three different stories that I can think of, and the the sort of very materialistic version of them that turns up in uh, The Mountains of Madness seems to be quite different from, for example, the indication of the pit of the Shoggoths as being this almost otherworldly place in The Thing on the Doorstep. And, and the plateau of Leng, you know, uh, again, you know, see, where is that? Is that somewhere in Tibet? Is that in the Antarctic? Or is it just, you know, somehow everywhere? <laughs> also, Nyarlathotep, um, this almost Egyptian-type figure that walks out of the desert, or a monster that resides at the core of the planet. The Elder Sign was something that he referred to some village people. Oh, no, I'm not going to say village people. <laughs> not the guy like with the Indian and the oh, motorcyclist. Oh, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I now want to do a really <laughs> eldritch form of YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, just some uh, some rural folk would he would refer to as making the elder sign. It was just some kind of symbol they made with their hand, like you know, yeah. warding off the evil eye kind of thing. Well, the, the, this whole thing about the elder sign being sort of the mythos equivalent to the cross that you hold up to repel uh, mythos creatures is is purely an invention of August Ehrlich. He just took that name and turned it into something different. And that's what's turned up in, in the role-playing game since then. Uh, that's nothing to do with Lovecraft. Including the fact that he describes it as a star, whereas Lovecraft descri- uh, describes it as a tree. It's got branches coming off it. <laughs> Use the star one and you'll be fighting off the star. old ones with your bare hands. Star. It's a tree! Having discussed H.P. Lovecraft, we now take a look at some of his contemporaries. As we've touched on, Lovecraft was a very prolific letter writer. This meant that he was not only in contact with a lot of his fellow writers from Weird Tales, but he also mentored a lot of up-and-coming writers, as well as ghostwriting for a a number of would-be writers. So his, his influence in the writing community and his peers was immense. This is very much what led to the birth of the Cthulhu Mythos, the fact that he encouraged a lot of these correspondents to share elements of his stories, that you know, they in turn, you know, you mentioned Clark Ashton Smith earlier, Robert E. Howard, the creator of the Conan stories, uh, also created a number of entities and books and so on that we associate with the Cthulhu Mythos and share those with Lovecraft. And there's two big hardback books that collect the, the letters between Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Yes. Yes, I mean, Howard was a fair bit younger than Lovecraft and you know, it still wasn't quite a mentor relationship because I think uh, Howard was already fairly well established by the time they became friends. But on the other hand, there were writers like Robert Block uh, who would later become world famous for writing Psycho. 
who actually started out uh, corresponding with Lovecraft, writing for weird tales, and like a, a number of horror writers, began his career imitating Lovecraft, stylistically to some extent, but certainly in content, before he found his own voice. And Lovecraft corresponded with Bloch, uh, they shared ideas, they wrote each other into their stories, uh, the, the Shambler from the Stars from Robert Bloch and The Haunter of the Dark from Lovecraft were, were each uh, corresponding pairs of this, this sort of attempt to kill each other off in prose. I think it's notable that, I mean, we've said that Lovecraft borrowed some um, aspects from other people's stories. But it really seems that even then, even while Lovecraft was alive, uh, he was there were there were people emulating his work. Oh yes, there were people really, um, you know, it was, there was something about Lovecraft's work they just wanted to 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 share a part of and and, and be part of this this Cthulhu mythos, for want of a better term. Yeah, so certainly the the younger writers, or you know, the ones who hadn't like Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard established their own work, certainly seemed to be very much echoes of him at the time, and that's very much the case with August Ehrlich, uh, Donald Wandry to some extent, uh, Fritz Lieber um, started out uh, at the very tail end of Lovecraft's career, corresponding with him, and was influenced, but admittedly, you know did less echoing of his style and, and found his own style much more quickly. Uh, and of course, Frank Belknap Long uh, was, was very much uh, Lovecraft's disciple. Yes, as part of this correspondence with other writers as well, Lovecraft also built up uh, work as a ghostwriter. And this was actually how he paid his bills, uh, mostly. He, he did obviously make some money by story sales under his own name to Weird Tales. Not much. I think for Call of Cthulhu, if I recall correctly, it was something, about 100, something like about $160 he got mm. for that. It was about one cent per word. Yeah. Which I guess, you know, probably scales up to a reasonable rate today, but uh, it's not great. Uh, and when he did... You know, and then also he did ghostwriting, and presumably got—I don't know if he got paid well for that, but probably about half a cent a word. Yeah, I assume. But yeah, his his ghostwriting tended to take the form of people would come to him with ideas, and he'd pretty much write the stories for them, and then it would be submitted under that person's name. Uh, and most famously, he uh, he wrote a story uh, which was published under the name Harry Houdini. Uh, under the pyramids. Yes. If you have read all of Lovecraft's stories, generally they're collected into three volumes, sometimes collected in one. That you know, there will be more for you to find because there are collections of his uh, works that he either co-authored or, as Scott just said, ghost wrote and you know basically wrote. Yes, the collection, the horror in the museum, and other stories from Markham House. That's, for example, a, a lot of the work that he ghost wrote. It's described as collaborations, but in in a lot of cases, you know, it was pretty much just Lovecraft writing it. Moving on into the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, we take a look at Lovecraft's legacy. As we've mentioned. Lovecraft stories were mostly published in the pulps, and this means that, like a lot of pulp writers of the era, they might have ended up being forgotten had they not survived in book form. 
And a large part of the survival is down to August Ehrlich and Donald Wondry, who founded Arkham House, uh, a small publishing company that was founded explicitly to put Lovecraft's work in print. Two, uh, just two years after his death in 1939. Yes. And they started out by doing a collection called The Outsider and Others, which was a big collection. Uh, and from there, you know, kept Lovecraft's work in print for a long time. But more than that, they legitimised, really, Lovecraft's work to the extent where other publishers then started putting out collections. Uh, and during the 1940s, Lovecraft enjoyed a, a brief burst of popularity, I and mean, there were tens of thousands of copies of, of, of books of, of his stories put out. Uh, there was a collection that was the Armed Services Edition that was uh, uh, issued to American servicemen during the Second World War. Which I'm pretty sure I've heard Sandy Peterson say that he read as a child. I think he read his father's copy. Brian Lumley also. Uh, that was how he discovered Lovecraft. But yes, even outside of that, there were a number of other publishers which then you know, produced paperback editions. Uh, Arkham House produced you know, fairly nice hardcover editions, but then you know, they produced these, these mass-market paperback editions. And Lovecraft did enjoy this burst of popularity throughout the 1940s, which then sort of trickled off in the 1950s. But you know, we, we're going to talk a bit more about, you know, sort of the, a bit later about the explosion in popularity of Lovecraft. But it's, it's perhaps worth noting that there was this kind of brief blip where it, you know, he was massively popular. And a lot of his enduring legacy may come down to the fact that there were a lot of writers uh, and you know, people creating stuff in other media who were exposed at this stage. Derleth gets much of the credit for keeping Lovecraft alive through the Arkham House books. He also is a contentious figure in the uh, what, what the Lovecraft's work has become seen as. Um, so Derleth kind of took it and put it into a, uh, a kind of a, a system. He well, kind of systematised it, codified, codified it. But, but he also made it much more conventional. I mean, it's worth noting that, you know, while Lovecraft was, as we've discussed, a materialistic atheist, uh, that uh, Derleth was a Christian and wanted to uh, reimagine Lovecraft's work in a sort of Christian light as a battle between good and evil. Suddenly, suddenly black and white became very much a theme, there was a good, there was an evil. And there was a family tree, you know, Cthulhu was marrying, I don't know, Shubnigarath and, uh, you know, they were having a child and... Yeah. Well, and also there were the elemental associations of the gods as well, they went into all these categories and so on. That... So Cthulhu was a water god, even though he's trapped under the sea. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, this is all Derlith. Yeah. And a lot of this survives to this day in Lovecraftian gaming. In a lot of respects, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, which we'll come on to later, is, is more of an August Derlith role-playing game than it is a Lovecraft one. Lovecraft's protagonists tend to be very much academics. They're passive characters. They experience events, but they very rarely do anything. Um, Derleth brought this slightly more, you know, pulpy aspect. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, right. these, these characters um, are using elder signs to fight off uh, monsters, like they would with the, the cross to hold off vampires. They're they're summoning. Uh, Bayaki and, and flying on the backs of them. It's, it's a much more kind of Indiana Jones take on um, Lovecraft. And that sounds much more like an average session of the Call of Cthulhu RPG. 
Sounds quite fun, really, but, you know. <laughs> and moving into the 60s and 70s, we look at the fiction explosion of the Cthulhu mythos. After the popularity of Lovecraft uh, during his lifetime and in the 40s, it, we see something of a decline in popularity in the 50s. Indeed, I had a friend of mine who was something like about 30 years my senior, who was really, really into 1950s comics and has published a book about them. And he recounted to me the difficulty in finding, the, the difficulty and the excitement in finding Lovecraft's books, I think maybe in the, the late 50s, early 60s, and how difficult they were to source, and how difficult they were to, you know, to, to get hold of. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Lovecraft's work would appear in uh, anthologies of science fiction and horror stories at this stage, but the actual collections of his I don't think existed much outside Arkham House, or at least not in uh, English language works. He, was, he became very, very popular in France. And you know, throughout the 1960s in particular, I believe, you know, there were far more copies of his books in French than there were in English. Even now, the Arkham House editions are still collectors' pieces that they fetch quite, quite high prices when they do go crop up on the market. Oh yes, yeah, definitely, yeah, well, particularly yeah. the early ones. Hmm. But then something started to happen that these writers who were influenced by these uh, older editions of Lovecraft uh, from the 1940s, or the few that would crop up in the 1950s and 60s, th those writers started writing stuff. And I guess we're talking about people that were born around the time of Lovecraft's death, you know, just after that, that were growing up, be becoming adult in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s themselves. Yes, or even in the 70s, yeah. Yes, and there were a lot of them. This is where the, the real explosion in Lovecraftian fiction begins. And a lot of it, I think, was down to... There were a few anthologies that came out uh, that really opened up the idea that Lovecraftian fiction wasn't just Lovecraft. I mean, we saw this certainly in Lovecraft's lifetimes with you know the collaborations and the, uh, the borrowing that went on. But again, a lot of that had been relegated to the pulps. But here in book form in 1969, we had Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos that reprinted a number of these pulp stories uh, and a few original pieces that were people writing in a Lovecraftian mode who weren't Lovecraft. So yes, I mean, this is people like Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard and August Derlith. And yeah, this, this was, a v and, and I believe Ramsey Campbell had a, at least one story in this collection. I think he edited one of them. He edited New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos, which uh, was published in 1980. And this, I think, was a real turning point in encouraging a wider range of, of modern writers to take an interest in Lovecraft and write in that, that style. It, it, it regenerated the genre of Lovecraftian fiction. And the, a few years after that, there was the first original collection of Lovecraftian tales, because there were only six original stories and tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. The rest of them were, were reprints from the pulps. But Disciples of Cthulhu, which Dorr put out in 1976, was all original stuff. And then a few years after that, there was Ramsey Campbell's uh, collection, or at least the one he edited, which was New Tales of the Cthulhu Mythos. And I think those two, between them, really opened up the floodgates. These anthologies then started accelerating from that point onwards. And nowadays, you know, if you try to keep up with Lovecraftian fiction, you just can't. Yeah, there well, are new anthologies hard. coming out the whole time. I mean, you know, yeah. there's, there's at least one new one month coming out now, and probably a lot more than that. 
and even some sub-collections or sub-genres within the mythos. Um, particularly the likes of um, Following in the Wake of True Detective, there's quite a lot of uh, King and Yellow collections coming out now, which Mr. Lee Lovecraft even subsumed into his own mythos in History of the Necronomicon. We've mentioned a couple of names already of writers who came out of this explosion, so probably the most prominent one uh, is Ramsey Campbell. We've mentioned him in the context of editing uh, one of these collections, but his first published collection back in 1964, uh, The Inhabitant of the Lake, was actually published by Arkham House. He was in correspondence with August Ehrlich, and August Ehrlich to a large extent mentored him the way that Lovecraft had mentored other writers, and gave him editorial advice, encouraged him, uh, and then once he'd accumulated enough stories that Derleth liked, then uh, published the collection, and this, this got him started out. Like a lot of writers who grew up in Lovecraft's shadow, Campbell took a little while to establish his own voice, but when he did, it turned into something quite different. And Campbell has returned to Lovecraftian fiction a few times in his career, but on the whole, he doesn't write much now. And he's, he published a, a, a book last year, uh, what was it, The Last Revelations, Last Revelations of, of Glarky. Uh, and, and about ten years ago, he did The Darkest Part of the Woods. But on the whole, his stories have been very much his own. And as soon as he did that and found his own voice, to, in my mind, it, he actually became a much stronger writer. In several ways, he almost mixed block, yeah. in that he starts off writing mythos fiction but then diverges into his own, whereas Campbell has a plethora of books, um, Block has Psycho and um, many others as well, but then also Block returned to Mythos with Strange, uh, Strange Eons. Yes. So yeah, the, the two do mirror each other in several ways. Yes, very much so. And probably the biggest name associated with the stories would be Stephen King, uh, who read? Who wrote a few short stories, and you know gives H.P. Lovecraft a lot of credit as it was one of the, the great horror authors. Um, I was reading Needful Things just recently. I was surprised that, that the actual mythos references in that, uh, the character goes to get a car somewhere and you know, just graffitied on the wall, just randomly out of nowhere, is uh, Yogg-Sothoth lives. <laughs> Uh, and they're just just these little things that if you, if you didn't know what they meant, you know, it wouldn't matter. Uh, they'd just be kind of odd. Yeah, but King has written some explicitly uh, mythos stories, like uh, Crouch End and Jerusalem's Lot. Uh, he has written stories which have touched upon the mythos, or at least you know, echoed it in the style and substance, like The Mist. I mean, it's difficult to see The Mist as anything other than a Lovecraftian story, Definitely. even if it doesn't use any names from the mythos. Mm. Uh, more recently, Revival, uh, which I, I think is a magnificent book, a real return to form for King. And, uh, dear God, is the end of that nihilistic and Lovecraftian. The other modern writer who was very much mentored by uh, Arkham House was Brian Lumley. I think it took a lot longer for Lumley to find his own voice and get out from under Lovecraft's shadows. I mean, for a long time, he wrote almost exclusively Lovecraftian stuff until he got round to his Necroscope series. But I, I call it Lovecraftian. I think, you know, in a lot of respects, Lumley echoed Derleth a lot more than uh, than Lovecraft. Uh, you know, his his Titus Crow stories, for example, are basically uh, Derleth dialed up to eleven. But then this is quite a good thing for people that you know for different audiences. I guess it took these things to to different people because if they're just 
done the same thing as Lovecraft, yeah. then what does that get us? But they're they're taking it and you know taking it in different directions and almost you know different um, you know different tones, different ways of telling stories, different amounts of action and so on. Yeah, and I think it took a while before there were more writers doing that and not just aping Lovecraft. Mm. And I think yeah, a couple of good examples, certainly from the the seventies and early eighties, are Carl Edward Wagner's story Sticks, which I think we'll have to do an episode on at some stage, is a magnificent example of how to do a Lovecraftian story without just echoing Lovecraft. Uh and later Ted Klein, uh who sadly hasn't published much uh, since this time, and did a couple of magnificent Lovecraftian books in the early 80s, uh, Dark Gods, which is a collection of, of novellas, and The Ceremonies, uh, which, to, you know, to my mind, is still the best Lovecraftian novel I've ever read. As I mentioned earlier, this growth in Lovecraftian fiction has accelerated through to the modern day, and now there are any number of writers who are... Uh, openly writing Lovecraftian fiction who are heavily influenced by him, but maybe have taken things in their own direction. That they aren't just trying to imitate Lovecraft's style, that they're they're reinterpreting things in their own distinctive manner. And, you know, we don't have time to list more than a handful of them, but uh, some of my favourites include Neil Gaiman, obviously, who's he's only written about four Lovecraftian stories, but the ones he've written he's written have been excellent. One of my personal favourites is Laird Barron, while he writes stuff that is um, very much in a Lovecraftian style, that, that he's got that sort of sense of cosmic nihilism and weirdness and alien entities from beyond our imagination, I don't remember him ever using a name or a reference to Lovecraft. It just feels like he's occupying the same imaginative space as Lovecraft. Uh, Caitlin Harkiernan has done some fantastic uh, kind of reimaginings of Lovecraft's ideas. Another one of my favourites, William Browning Spencer. Uh, you, you read Resume with Monsters, didn't you? Yeah, that's just, I don't know if he's written any more, but oh, uh, that one is genius. Yeah, he's, he's written a number of Lovecraftian pieces, but Resume with Monsters is oh, is probably the funniest Lovecraftian story I've ever read. But not a comedy. I mean, no. it's funny, but um, it, it's got yeah, just a fantastic book. It's, it's, it's really quite bleak. And speaking of bleak, there's Thomas Ligotti. Again, another one who probably echoes Lovecraft's nihilism without actually incorporating any elements of the mythos. Uh, and, you know, if that name sounds familiar uh, to you, he, he was a huge influence on True Detective. If you like True Detective, you owe it to yourself to go out and read some Ligotti. Uh, stylistically, probably the closest modern-day uh, writer, I'd say, is W.H. Pugmire. Uh, who I, I've only read a handful of his stories, but they seem to have that that quite florid, delirious prose that I associate with Lovecraft. But 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 not just aping it; that you know, it is very much his own style. Um, and uh, and Joseph Pulver, uh, who's done some fantastic stuff, though yeah, though his work tends to build much more on Robert Chambers than Lovecraft. Sticking with the 1960s, but moving through to the 1980s, we look at how the mythos has now got a tentacle in every subculture. Tentacle 1. Film. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. One of the side effects of the growth of Lovecraft's popularity in the 60s and 70s was the spread of the Cthulhu mythos into every subculture. 
Tentacles uh, everywhere. Tentacles everywhere. And Burrowing everywhere. First of all, we're going to take a look at Lovecraft in film. Even if you've not read Lovecraft stories, you've probably seen some of the films that have been influenced by his work. Yeah, if you want to get some idea of how pervasive Lovecraft is in film, just put Lovecraft into the search field of IMDb. There are, I, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say, hundreds of entries that come up when you put his name in. It's also that with film, it's the easiest media that it's, if you think of it as a progression that A leads to B leads to C, that you start with text and then film is the na next natural evolution of a story into another media. Yeah, except I, it's maybe not that natural with Lovecraft because you could argue that a lot of his stuff is fundamentally unfilmable. Oh, very much so, yes. I, mean, the, I don't think it's a, uh, any coincidence that for years, I, I don't think it's still there, the main website which tracked Lovecraftian films and development and so on was called unfilmable.com. There's so many instances of indescribable horror. Well, how are you going to put that on film? <laughs> a scared look on someone's face as they look at something off the screen? It wouldn't exactly come across very effectively, shall we say. The first instances with film, at least film Lovecraft material, started out almost under a different guise. Because you yeah. have Poe being the particular the marketing point for the Haunted Palace. Yeah, well, AIP did all these great uh, Poe adaptations in the 1960s. You know, things like The Mask of the Red Death and The Pit and the Pendulum and so on. And they made a lot of money out of these in The Raven. And, you know, so when it came round to them doing their first Lovecraft adaptation, the first Lovecraft adaptation ever, they decided for marketing purposes to put it out under a title taken from a poem by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, it, was a lot, it was Roger Coleman that did a lot of the... Um, a lot of the directing there. Did he direct Haunted Palace as well? I think he did. Yeah, yeah so yeah, there's, a con there's a consistency there. Um, the story itself was based more on um, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which later, when you skip forward to the early 90s, was refilmed as The Resurrected. Yes, much more faithfully so, but um, and that said, you know, The Haunted Palace is still a fine film and stars Vincent Price as Charles Dexter Ward. Yeah, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Um, you also have another fairly big name in the original adaptation, film adaptation of The Colour Out of Space with, I think this is a fantastic title, Die Monster Die! Complete with explanation marks on the um, on the film posters. Oh god, yes. That has... Boris Karloff. Yes. Hunting for the name, all I just remember him was glowing while he got, off, um, got up out of a wheelchair in one <laughs> scene. Yes, Karloff managed to appear in, I think, at least two Lovecraftian films, because he was also in Curse of the Crimson Altar, which was his last film, which was somewhat inspired by Dreams in the Witch House. Yeah. And short, shortly after Die, Monster, Die, you have The Shuttered Room from 1967. Although, the personal favourite of mine from that, from that era, uh, being a youthful Dean Stockwell, um, ironically appearing in a remake of um, this particular film, uh, but the original from 1970, The Dunwich Horror. Yeah, yeah so a fairly psychedelic take on the story. Yag Oath, Yag Oath, join the circle, complete the chain. Yag Sothoth is the gate whereby the spheres meet, and with the gate open, 
the old one shall be. Oh, with some great love interest in there. Oh, yeah, some very weird dance scenes and other craziness. And also, dumb, the thing that really, I think, lost a lot of the original story there, that the, um, the adaptation of Dumbwich itself very much just had it as small-town America in the 70s. There was little, oh, it's a small mouldering place that's almost been overgrown and forgotten by time. No, it's it's got a it's got a shopping centre, well, not a shopping mall, but it's got almost like a strip mall. It's got uh, regular amenities. It didn't feel like Dunwich at all. But, but then, of course, say Stockwell then um, appeared as Armitage in a later adaptation in the. It's not all that long ago, I think. No, it was only a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. but in in this original one, he played Wilbur Wakeley, didn't he? Yes. But moving away from films that have been directly adapted from Lovecraft stories, there are plenty out there that have been inspired by proxy. One of the major inspirations behind um, Who Goes There, John, uh, John W. Campbell's story, was At the Mountains of Madness, which was filmed... I can think it's, you can argue it's been filmed three times. Um, yeah. yeah. You could argue it, but maybe yeah. not very successfully. <laughs> yeah. uh, the one decent adaptation was John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, there was also the, I think the 1950s black and white The Thing from Another World that featured a vampire carrot. Yes. That uh, was rather silly, but it's good fun with James Arness. Yes, but it's got very little to do with the original story. Well, very, very, a very apart, little. Apart from the setting of the Antarctic. <laughs> and I think even then it's set in the Arctic, isn't it? Anyway, I can't remember. <laughs> yes, And, of course, then the... Sequel come prequel to John Carpenter's version, also entitled The Thing, just to make yeah. things really nice and complicated. Um, thinking of Carpenter, he also made Prince of Darkness, another another favourite film of mine, actually, from um, 87. Although, um, as Scott mentioned in um, in some research, it owes, owes more to Nigel Neal than it does to, to Lovecraft in certain elements. Yeah, it's very much a love letter to the Quatermass films, but but at the same time, you can certainly argue that there are Lovecraftian elements in Quatermass, particularly the Quatermass Experiment is a very Lovecraftian film. Mm -hmm. Going out into space and then coming back changed, yes. Yeah. And, the, and the creature at the end of it you know, is something straight out of Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. Again with um, Carpenter, he definitely seems to have, um, have a love for, uh, for Lovecraft, with In the Mouth of Madness. Fantastic film that is almost a three-way head-on collision between uh, Jonathan Carroll, Stephen King, and Lovecraft. Hmm. So you put you put King and Lovecraft together to get a central character, and then it uses a setup for Carroll's novel, The Land of Laughs. Yes, uncredited, <laughs> <laughs> which is a shame because I think it'd be nice that Carroll got more exposure. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I did read an interview with Carroll some time back where apparently he did have a conversation with the scriptwriter from The Mouth of Madness, uh, and the guy said, oh yeah, yeah, I, I did lift it wholesale from your book. Oh, <laughs> ouch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there wasn't a lawsuit there, I don't know. There, there are also much more tangential influences in some films. So, for example, in Alien... Uh, the creature design and so on all came from H.R. Giger, uh, who in turn was very influenced by Lovecraft. Uh, the, the art collection he put out around the same time was called Necronomicon. Mm. And you know, Giger, I think, did go on record as saying Lovecraft was a, a huge influence on the, the design of pretty well all the stuff in Alien. Yeah, well, I mean, ancient alien beings that who don't have any crossover with humanity whatsoever until we just accidentally run into them is, is perfect Lovecraftian yes. uh, mythos material, really. Yes, and then, then just destroy us. I mean, those things could just be the great old ones. 
and then you have Prometheus, which pretty much labels the engineers well, as being the, as being the as being the older things, <laughs> creating humanity and then trying to destroy it when they realise that it got out of control. Speaking of the Necronomicon, um, that does pop up um, somewhat tongue in cheek, uh, cheekily, in Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead films. Yes, I mean, the Evil Dead films are not really Lovecraftian in any way, but they use the Necronomicon. Yeah. I, I beg to differ. I've seen a few people that have put chainsaws on their hands in games and, and gone, <laughs> listen up, you primitive screwheads, this is my boomstick. Yeah, in games, I'm not sure that makes it Lovecraftian. <laughs> <laughs> if we all remember gun legs from our... Yeah. But if we're talking truly Lovecraftian, surely the next one on our list really nails it. Oh, yes. Um, the one, the only, the legend. Yes, Stuart Gordon, the great man that he is. Um, admittedly more a name in theatre, um, but also, say, renowned throughout the film, uh, the film industry for doing the likes of Reanimator, uh, From Beyond, which many teenagers at that time probably loved, uh, loved him for a great deal, <laughs> um, Dagon, more recently, and his adaptations of Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, also, Castle Freak and the Evil Clergyman, although I haven't seen the last two. Yeah, Castle Freak was supposedly influenced by The Outsider. It's not a very good it's film. It's not great. No, and The Evil Clergyman, I haven't seen either. It was done for an anthology film uh, in the 1980s that was never released. And apparently, you know, it's been separated out from the rest of the anthology and released as a, a short film. But I've never been able to track it down. So, listener, if you know where it is, please let us know. It stars Jeffrey Coombs as the evil clergyman. That's hardly surprising. Yours are regular in pretty much all of them. I know, but, but that's why I want to see it. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey Coombs in his prime in a Stuart Gordon film I haven't seen. <laughs> but, yeah, Gordon's take on Lovecraft was... In the case of Reanimator, probably actually fairly faithful in, in some odd respects, but he added a lot of sex and violence... Uh, to the stories. Well, particularly sexual aspects of it, which, you know, were not there in Lovecraft at all and probably would have repulsed Lovecraft. Yeah, we, we discussed this in our episode on Dreams in the Witch House where we looked at his adaptation there. And it's a similar instance where he gender swaps one of the characters and has a romantic interest, um, deletes certain other aspects of the story. But ultimately, I think he actually portrays his story in a lot more emotional impact in this, um, in his film adaptation, than the story does. Yeah, I, personally, I'm a huge fan of Stuart Gordon's adaptations of Lovecraft. I'm, they are certainly not a, a purist approach, but I think as as commercial horror films, they're absolute triumphs. And in the early '90s, we started to see a growth of uh, low-budget films being made by you know students and and uh, and people who could. The facilities were now in people's hands to create films straight onto video and so on. Uh, and we saw films by people like Aaron Vanek um, doing Return to Innsmouth. This brought about a film festival, the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, which began in Portland, Oregon in 1995. Uh, and there are numerous collections of short films, you know, amateur films, some of which are, you know, really, uh, really very good. Yeah. Um, of of all different uh, of all different types, some comedic, some quite serious. Yeah, Lurker Films put out, I believe, a five or six volume collection um, that incorporated a lot of those. Um, also, when you mentioned Vanek, also he did an adaptation of um, the Yellow Sign, which was written by co-written by John Tynes, mm. which again somewhat different to the um, the original story, but also lovely little um, little short film. 
Yeah, my personal favourite out of the stuff that was released through Lurker Films was that thing that was done, I think, for Canadian television, uh, H.P. Lovecraft Out of Mind. Oh, that's lovely, yeah. yes. which, I mean, it's not an adaptation of any particular one of Lovecraft's stories. It's a, a short film about Lovecraft, but fictionalised and bringing in elements from his stories, and, yeah, it's just marvellous. And a really nice production. Yeah. Quality as well. Particularly the person who portrayed Lovecraft. Yeah. Really nailed it. Oh, Christopher Heyerdahl, I think, was yes. the actor. Yeah. yeah, Lovecraft keeps almost making the big time in films, and there have been a number of near misses recently with with big productions of his work. I mean, uh, Ron Howard was supposed to be making a film a couple of years back that never came about. Uh, and But most famously, I think, uh, there's Guillermo del Toro's uh, repeated attempts to get at the Mountains of Madness made. Yeah, he, I mean, he... He says that he's really desperate to get this film made. He, you know, this is one of his great ambitions to put Lovecraft on the screen. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can't think of a person who is more suited to do that. His monsters and the way he puts that kind of stuff on screen in Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy, um, it'd be fantastic to see him do straight Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly Lovecraftian elements in a number of his films. I mean, Hellboy definitely, and even you know his his first feature, Kronos. Uh, he, he cites Cool Air as being a big influence on that, and I can definitely see it. There seems to be a, a big uh, sticking point, seems to be the certification level that he would have to make the film under, but I don't know, I mean, when you read Mountains of Madness... The things that the MPAA, you know, which would be the deciding factor here, tend to be the most hung up on. Uh, nudity and bad language, they don't tend to care too much about violence. Yeah. And, you know, there's no nudity or bad language in the original source material. And, you know, all right, you, you may have some fairly gruesome stuff when it comes to the older things dissecting people, but you've probably seen worse in a lot of PG-13 films. Tentacle 2. Comics. Just mentioned Hellboy, and of course Hellboy actually comes from a comic. A comic by Mike Mignola. And uh, that, too, incorporates a lot of Lovecraftian elements, in fact, probably more so than the film. But Lovecraft has been a staple of comics for, oh gosh, at least since the 1970s, probably since the 1960s. And there have been elements, you know, it, particularly, you know, for example, a lot of references in Marvel's Savage Sword of Conan stories, or at least you know, the various Conan comics they produced in the 1970s, had, you know, a lot of Lovecrafting gods turning up in the background there. Um, <coughs> sorry. At the same time, there were many straight adaptations of Lovecraft stories uh, by people like Richard Corbin, Roy Thomas, uh, John Goldthart, uh, and, oh gosh, I mean, too many to count. I mean, th th there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adaptations out there. Yeah, more recently there was a, you know, a whole string of original stories uh, in Cthulhu Tales and uh, an ongoing series, The Fall of Cthulhu. Although that has ended now, I believe. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, the, um, admitted the last collection wasn't too brilliant, but the... The previous, the ones leading up to that were forming a story arc, which they pretty much concluded. Um, they spun it off with Hexed, which was a one a single collection they put together. But Cthulhu Tales, I, I really liked Cthulhu Tales. Yeah. It was uh, lots of standalone stories. It wasn't an ongoing arc. You could just pick up a single collect, um, single edition, and it would have like two or three um, encapsulated stories within that. 
Yeah, and as with all such things, I mean, there was a lot of variety, well, variation in quality. Oh, God, yes. But, but some of the stories were magnificent. Uh, the uh, the kids' production of The King in Yellow was fantastic. Oh, I did enjoy that. <laughs> uh, but probably my favourite Lovecrafting comics of recent years have been the things that Alan Moore's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Courtyard was a terrific idea. Um, I won't spoil it for you if you haven't read it, but there is a brilliant idea at the centre of it, which unfortunately I don't think you know, it gets played out quite as well as it might have, but it's still well worth reading. It's a bit quick, that's the only thing I'd say. Yeah, and a bit obvious. But um, yeah, then he, he expanded on that and uh, took things in a new direction with a, a larger graphic novel called Neonomicon. Mm. But yeah, he's he's now um, just about to embark on a twelve-issue uh, series, uh, which is sort of his his grand Lovecraftian tale, as he puts it, uh, called Providence. And personally, I can't wait to get my hands on that. I would say um, this would be where we should probably have like a big red warning uh, warning sign on. Go off on your screen, dear, uh, dear listener. Um, if you do go and track down Neonomicon, this is not safe for work, as I discovered. Yeah, ne- <laughs> ne- Neonomicon has got some pretty horrific stuff in there, including some quite graphic sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not the kind of thing you read on your lunch break at work, and then get people look over your shoulder and go, What the hell are you reading? <laughs> Tentacle 3, television. On the small screen, Lovecraft's also had his influence felt in a number of different, um, I'd say, anthology series throughout the years. Because that definitely seems to be where his forties hit more with the likes of Night Gallery. Yeah, Night Gallery was, now that I think about it, was probably actually my introduction to Lovecraft. I'm not entirely sure because it was around the same time as I read my first Lovecraft story. But I think... It's quite possible that the first exposure I had to Lovecraft at all was their adaptation of Cool Air, which I must have been about nine or ten when I saw it, and it scared the fuck out of me. And put your air conditioning for life. <laughs> uh, but they did that, they did Pickman's Model, uh, and they did a, a, a few stories that, well, at least one story that was um, inspired by Lovecraft called Professor Peabody's Last Lecture. That is wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Yes. I, I think that's actually on YouTube, so we'll try to remember to put a link in there. It is. Shove Niggereth and a dancing Cthulhu! <laughs> and also Clark Ashton Smith's Return of the Sorcerer. Yes, yeah, not a great adaptation of it, but... Yeah. Um, one of the few times he sits screen. Yeah. And another collection that features uh, a Lovecraft story, you know, ones made by different directors and so on, uh, in the Masters of Horror, we've got Dreams in the Witch House, which we've previously discussed, which mm-hmm. is a, a great uh, take on the H.P. Lovecraft story of the same name. Yeah. There was almost a television series inspired by him, a British series back in, I think it was the early 80s, uh, called Rough Magic, which unfortunately didn't move beyond a pilot episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, starring Paul Darrow, the first episode is available on... Um, volume 2. Yeah, Volume 2 of the Lurker Films collection. And I mean, it's low budget. It's a bit rough, but it's it's certainly a gl- good glimpse at what might have been. Hmm. It's got a very Delta Green kind of feel to it. Yeah, it does, and a very good take on Cthulhu, which I must admit I've stolen at times. Hmm. Yeah. Um, passing reference, at least in one episode, the collect call of Cthulhu from the real Ghostbusters. So he has made it into um, to kids' t- uh, cartoon TV as well. Yes. <laughs> 
And, and Lovecraft apparently was quite a big influence on uh, some of the elements of Babylon 5 as well. And certainly, what, what was it, the shadows and that? And Vorlons. Yeah, but it was the shadows mm. in particular. Were, yeah, which yeah, were particularly Lovecraftian. Kind of, yeah, ineffable uh, alien creatures yeah. that, you know, were, the, the very presence of which was almost toxic to humanity. And yeah. Tentacle 4. Music. I guess it's fairly inevitable that Lovecraft's influence would also extend into music, because obviously, you know, like anyone in any other creative endeavour, songwriters just absorb everything around them and, and you know, reimagine and reuse them. And and certainly, you know, Lovecraft's influence has been strong in music ever since the 60s. Well, one of the early ones in the 60s uh, was a band called H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, an American psychedelic rock band who actually did a few Lovecraftian-themed songs, like The White Ship and The Mountains of Madness. I still think this is somewhat ironic that people decided to go off and to go off into a musical vent, because... Didn't they learn anything by the music of Eric Zahn? What <laughs> happens to musicians when you start meddling with this stuff? Basically, the the one I um, was finding that was more visible um, was Metallica. Um, they didn't spell Cthulhu right, <laughs> and I think they credit it somewhere that it was in more inspired by um, the Shadow of Arinsmith. The um, the story was their main source of inspiration to write the music that they did. Yeah, but it's an instrumental, so it doesn't fucking matter anyway. No, very true. <laughs> it's a pretty good instrumental, admittedly. It's a long one too. Yeah. But they also did another one called The Thing That Should Not Be, which wasn't an instrumental, which, again, is fairly Lovecraftian. Yeah. That one I haven't heard of. I will have to track down. Yes, that's, uh, that's on Master of Puppets, I think. Ah. Mm. Uh, yeah, Blue Oyster Cult used a lot of references to Lovecraft, and just you know, little bits here and there. Uh, the, the Old One's Return is a pretty... from Curse of the Hidden Mirror, their last yes. album. And um, the King in Yellow... Uh, books by the name of some by the Dead, The King in Yellow and The Queen in Red for yes. e uh, ETI. And one great band that takes its name from a line from The Colour Out of Space, Darkest of the Hillside Thickets, mm -hmm. uh, which is a truly Lovecraftian band playing. Uh, and, and there's a few CDs of their music out. Uh, it's great stuff. Well, didn't one of the band members even put out a Lovecraftian role-playing game, Spaceship Zero? Yeah, based on the album. Under album of the same yeah. name. But, I mean, this is just scratching the surface. You could do an entire episode about Lovecraftian music, and God knows there are dozens and dozens of metal bands out there uh, who have taken you know elements from Lovecraft for their names, their songs, their lyrics, and so on. As someone who hasn't really listened to metal since the 1980s, I, I can't really begin to tell you about it. But just go out there, search for Lovecraft and metal, and you will find fucktons. Some of them are even good. Tentacle 5. Computer Games. Another way that people may come into contact with Lovecraft without really having read any of his stories uh, is through computer games. And again, yeah, unsurprisingly, yeah, particularly out of the role-playing game, uh, his, his work has become quite a staple of computer games. It perhaps started off with Infocom's The Lurking Horror in 87, 
yeah, text-only adventure, which I remember playing at the time. And uh, yeah, if you ever played any of the classic Infocom adventures, it's you know like things like Zork and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, it's it's one of those, but uh, Lovecraftian, and it's fun. You got Shadow of the Comet from '93 and Prisoner of Ice from '95, which that is one that I have played. Prisoner of Ice. Um, I think it's a World War Two game. Um, it takes place on submarines and. Uh, uh, and enemy bases, and uh, it's one I got an old copy of and played with my son a few years ago. Yeah, that's, right. that was a fun game. Yeah, it's a kind of point-and-click graphical adventure, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more recently, well, not that much more recently, uh, there's Anchorhead, uh, which is it's available for free. Uh, it's uh, another bit of interactive fiction uh, like uh, The Lurking Horror, uh, but uh, you know, being a slightly more modern one, you know, it, it was written for computers with more memory, so it's it's not over in about uh, a couple of hours the way that the lurking horror is. And yeah, it's again a lot of fun. One of the big names would be the Call of Cthulhu licensed game Dark Corners of the Earth. Oh yeah, um, that was that, that was the first time we were really seeing a you know one that tried to be true to um, Shadow of Innsmouth. Uh, and more the kind of Call of Cthulhu role-playing game ilk. Yeah, it's it's actually you know very heavily rooted in the Shadow over Innsmouth. It's set in Innsmouth and does a fantastic job. It's a sort of three uh, D adventure, um, uh, not quite a shoot 'em up because it's not actually that violent. You tend to spend much more time sneaking around and hiding from stuff. But uh, yeah, oh god, it's dripping with atmosphere. I think it also owes a certain amount to Shadow Out of Time, because there's a heavy Yithian element. Yes, there is. Well. Yeah, particularly in the opening scene. And most recently there's uh, Call of Cthulhu The Wasted Land, which has come out on, on phones and tablets, uh, which is much more of a sort of tactical game, I think, than, than an adventure. Uh, I've played it very briefly, but as I discovered, it's, it's a lousy game to try playing on a phone. Uh, I, th I think it'd be a lot more fun on a tablet. Tentacle 6, Fanzines. Another place where Lovecraft became very popular was in the fanzine uh, scene, which kind of kicked off in the late 70s. Uh, you're not like not so likely to have come across these unless you were actually seeking out information about Lovecraft, uh, but it, it reflects the popularity of, of Lovecraft among the, 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 the kind of uh, the fan culture. Uh, and we see Lovecraft studies in beginning in seventy nine, uh, Crypt of Cthulhu in the early eighties, along along with Dagon. Lovecraft studies really, I think, started out St. Joshi's career, and we'll talk a bit more about him soon. Uh, but he edited the publication. Uh, it's now uh, been replaced by something called the Lovecraft Annual, which, you know, as the name suggests, uh, comes out once a year. But this is the, the, the serious publication about, um, about literary analysis and criticism of Lovecraft. But most of these fanzines featured uh, new fiction, new short stories, and kind of uh, critical um, analysis of, of Lovecraft stories and exploration yeah, of I similar things. I don't think Lovecraft Studies ever published fiction. I think it was much more sort of academic analysis. Yeah, it's more what the title would suggest. Now, Crypt of Cthulhu was a very different beast. It was much more tongue-in-cheek. And it was edited by Robert M. Price, uh, who would later probably become better known for editing the Chaosium fiction line. The thing I remember from Crypt of Cthulhu is definitely they had very almost caricature-esque uh, drawings on the front cover that kind of hinted at some of the tone within. 
Yeah, actually, Crypt of Cthulhu was sort of my introduction to the larger world of Lovecraft fandom. Uh, I used to buy yeah. this when I lived in New York back in the early 80s. And I used to get that Lovecraft studies and then, you know, a bit later on, uh, Dagon. No, I remember coming across some in that um, fantastic bookshop in uh, Birmingham, uh, which is no longer there now. Andromeda Books, I think it was. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was around the time I was getting into Lovecraft in the late 80s and going into there and... Uh, you know, coming across those, and I was like, wow, people have, you know, got magazines about this. Yeah, unfortunately, the heyday of fanzines is behind us now. The internet, you know, has really replaced all that. Yeah, and we were talking about um, mostly black and white, pretty much kind of photocopied uh, A5 booklet, staple-bound, yeah, with a, with a colour card cover. And and I don't think that it's a coincidence that a lot of these didn't really survive into the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Tentacle 7. The Occult. Yog! Sharpah! We talked about the fact that Lovecraft used a number of uh, arcane books in his work and referenced a mixture of real-world books and titles that he created, and some of the other authors did likewise. Um, but this has kind of spread into the real world. So, I mean, there, there were people, you know, back then kind of wondering, oh, how can I get hold of a copy of the Necronomicon? Uh, but then, you know, some people have taken it upon themselves to, to actually create copies of the Necronomicon, uh, and others, you know, may choose to believe that the uh, the pantheon of gods created by Lovecraft are actually real, and that Lovecraft was documenting uh, real things. Basically, I am sad to say that any copy of the Necronomicon I've got has yet to live up to Lovecraft's description. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be at least about a half dozen books out there now purporting to be the Necronomicon. Uh, I mean, they're, probably the most famous one of them is the Simon Necronomicon, which mm -hmm. came out of the Magical Child Bookshop in New York back in oh, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, there's more recently the Donald Tyson one, uh, and he's done a, a fictional biography of Abdul al Hazred to go with it. And, and the Necronomicon Tarot as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, I mean, the, the Tyson thing is, is interesting because he also writes kind of real-world occult books. And it, it sort of represents that slight bleed-over. I know the, the Necronomicon books have largely been fairly tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, particularly you know, the, the efforts by Dave Langford and Brian Stableford. But there's been this, this adoption of Lovecraft in you know, more serious occult works. Uh, perhaps most surprisingly, uh, there was uh, a, an occult writer called Kenneth Grant, uh, who wrote a lot of books about Crowley, um, who was very interested in the OTO and sort of the darker side of, of uh, the Western occult tradition, who in some of his later books started working Lovecraftian elements and names of gods and looking for parallels between Lovecraft and uh, Thelemic magic, for example, which was really quite bizarre. Um, I think he ended up taking quite a lot of uh, flack for that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just one of the, the more bizarre bleeds of Lovecraft into other culture. Yeah, there's a one of the tomes that I use uh, referencing when I write for trying to get consistencies with real-world occultism. There's a book called The Magician's Handbook, which um, mm. actually Scott introduced me to. 
um, that when I was flicking through that has mention of various different gods, but in more in a Dolathian context that it definitely associates them as elemental entities, for example. But the names are still there. And yeah, I've, I've certainly encountered occultists who've ended up using Lovecraftian elements in their, their practices. Um, but, the, I mean, that's mostly come out of the, the chaos magic movement of the 1990s, which was much more... <sighs> chaos magic is a difficult thing to describe, but it basically boils down to you try to make yourself believe things for as long as they're useful. Uh, the idea that belief is a tool and not an end to itself. Uh, and so you can, you know, construct rituals around stuff that you know to be completely fake and made up, you know, like Lovecraft. But as long as it creates the proper associations in your mind and gives yourself the fuel for the, the ritual you need to do, then it's useful for as long as you're doing it. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, chaos magicians were drawn to, to Lovecraft, because he had created this, this kind of evocative, uh, if nothing else, set of names and ideas. Convincing yourself that you believe something for as long as it serves a purpose. This is just modern day politics, I think, Scott. <laughs> I, I was more thinking double think. But, uh, using yeah. all well. There, there is a large amount of double thinking chaos magic. And you yourself are a, a Lovecraftian warlock, aren't you, Scott? <sighs> My secret's out. <laughs> There's a reason you kept the beard. <laughs> Not the beard. <laughs> Tentacle 8. Tabletop Gaming. And I believe, I, I, I have heard rumours that Lovecraftian influence has even extended as far as role-playing games. Really? We may need to fact-check that one, Scott. Are you sure you're not getting confused with D&D? I know there's a few similar elements there. Yeah. There was a book, there was a D&D book, Dungeons & Dragons book, Deities and Demigods. Is that what you're thinking of? Oh, that must be it, Because that yeah. featured a whole bunch of Lovecraftian uh, deities. Yeah, that was the one they had to reprint because they used elements from Michael Moorcock's stuff as well, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly fairly hard to get hold of. Yeah. So, we had Dungeons & Dragons kicking off in the mid-70s. Um, and only, a, you know, retrospectively, only a, a scant few years later in 81, we get Chaosium publishing Sandy Peterson's game, uh, The Call of Cthulhu, uh, closely based or influenced by uh, the role-playing game RuneQuest, also published by Chaosium. Uh, so that's, that's, I mean, we, I mean it's, it's a fairly short path to track back its, its you know, 3D6 stats back to D&D, &D, really. Yes, yeah, I, I think RuneQuest started out as an attempt to do D&D right. Uh, and, yeah, then obviously the system that it spawned, you know, basic role-playing, ended up being used as the underpinnings for a lot of games that Chaosium did, you know, particularly in the 1980s. But I think the major thing we see in Call of Cthulhu is that it gave us a role-playing game uh, that wasn't about, um, you know, going through dungeons and fighting monsters. It wasn't about acquisition and improving your character and going up levels. No, it was about uh, buying shotguns and dynamite and blowing things up. <laughs> <laughs> Only if you're doing it right, Scott. There was an intention to, to have more story, to have more in, about investigation, more about role-playing, and it certainly at the time it, it did feel uh, like a very different kind of game. 
Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I've said this before, I think, but Call of Cthulhu was the first role-playing game I played that really excited me. Mm. I, I played Dungeons & Dragons and Traveller before then, and I thought they were fun. You know, I, I liked the idea of role-playing. But as soon as I read Call of Cthulhu, I knew that this was something special. Another thing that set it apart was was the setting. It was a it was, they they chose to set it in the nineteen twenties rather than modern day. I think maybe Sandy would have gone modern day, but Chaosium were keen to keep it with the the, the period setting, seeing that as a as a selling point. Um, and you know, indeed, it is. So they could put out lots of supplements for nineteen twenties uh, locations and so on. Well, I think one of the things that's that's maybe a byproduct of that is the fact that the old supplements have got a slightly timeless feel to them. If they'd been set in the 1980s, they'd wow. now be period yeah. things set in the 1980s. Yeah, like the 90s handbook, Cthulhu yeah. Now, etc. Yeah, which is now Cthulhu Then. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> the popularity of the role-playing game then led into Chaosium putting out a fiction line, uh, of which they put out many, many collections of fiction, uh, some new fiction, some old fiction, republishing works by Clark, Ashton Smith, Lynn Carter, and so on. Uh, they then also, I was going to say, jumped on the bandwagon. Yes, jumped on the bandwagon of collectible card games with the Mythos CCG, uh, which was a fun game, but it didn't really... Uh, it was maybe on the downward curve of CCGs, or it didn't, uh, you know, obviously magic... Uh, it was the big one that's still going today in a, I don't know, I, I guess a kind of lesser form than it was in its heyday. It goes in different cycles, you, uh, especially I've uh, been a relatively long-term Magic player myself. You get um, you get people that when they meet up and play, you say, when did you start collecting? Well, I started here and stopped there. The people will start for a while and then just stop because it becomes... They call it card crack for a reason. Yeah, I know this conversation, Max. You had this very conversation with the barman in the cocktail bar that we went yeah. to on your stag do. Yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, what set do you collect? I collect the blue ones. And which ones? Oh, I'm all the red ones. And it's like, just I make another mojito already. I started with this block finished with this one. I mean, one game that is has become really popular in its reissue, Arkham Horror. Arkham Horror, the board game, the original, was back there in the 80s. Uh, I mean, that's massive now, the Fantasy Flight board game. Yeah, I've got the original one from the 1980s, and that's a very different beast. I mean, it, it plays much the same, but, you know, physically, it <laughs> it looks very kind of 1980s and simple and... It doesn't have that glossy feel and beautiful artwork that the modern editions have. But does it take an hour to set up? Give or take. Does oh it take boy. 24 hours to play? <laughs> it feels like it. That's <laughs> yeah, so the, the one downside I'd say to Arkham Horror. While it's, well, it's a really fantastic game, you need to employ someone to set the bloody thing up and take it down afterwards. It's There's a lot of pieces in that game. A group playing... Call of Cthulhu decided to try and play Call of Cthulhu in a live action way uh, and they were to become the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, um, a group in Colorado now moved to California and they have a fantastic reputation for turning out uh, wonderful audio dramas, uh, two uh, feature films, a silent black and white feature of Call of Cthulhu and a talkie of the Whisperer in Darkness, uh, and their, their, their stuff is top-notch. 
Yeah, they've done those collections of Christmas carols, uh, uh, Scary Solstice and even Scarier Solstice. Fantastic. A Shoggoth on the Roof, which started out as a kind of joke and then actually turned into an actual stage production. <laughs> and and we saw the world premiere of that in Stockholm about, yes. about ten years ago. Two, it was ten years ago, come this November 2005. I remember it was my 40th birthday. In oh. Swedish! <laughs> yes. The ghoul stole the show even though they had no lines. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from meat. <laughs> and they, I believe they still do LARPs. They, they certainly do props for LARPs still. Um, yeah, but their, their LARPs involve getting in actual helicopters and flying out into the desert. You know, they, they really go to town. Or, or getting into the back of a white van in Stockholm in November, taking your shoes off oh, and lying in a body yeah. bag. With a toe tag. Yeah. Here's your, here's your character brief. Take off your shoes and socks, put on the toe tag. We've got the body bag. We'll put you in the back of the van, knock and tell you when to start. Done. <laughs> yeah, that was memorable. Yes. <laughs> so if you ever get a chance to play with those guys, fantastic. Moving into the 1990s, we see the birth of pagan publishing, with John Tynes and others launching the Unspeakable Oath, and this takes us into the rise of the internet, which is a whole new spawning ground for Lovecraft fandom. And also, it's worth noting that yeah, there have been any number of Lovecraftian role-playing games that have, have grown up in the wake of Call of Cthulhu. And obviously some of the bigger ones are things like Trail of Cthulhu. Uh, and Delta Green? Delta, yeah, Delta Green. Well, Delta yeah, Green which, from Pagan Publishing, yeah. yes. Which is on the verge of becoming its own role-playing game. Yes, yeah. also one that's uh, rather close to various people's hearts in here. World War Cthulhu. Hmm, yes, I hear good things about that one. Yeah, funny that. But but to be fair, that is more of a setting for Call of Cthulhu than its own mm. role-playing game. True, it's but it has a very different feel from mainstream Cthulhu. Yes. Mm. And finally, a look at Lovecraft and his place in the world today. Now, moving forward into today, this is well past the 1970s, so we're very much out of our comfort zone here. <laughs> um, Lovecraft has taken up a mantle where he's very much seen as a, well, a legitimate writer, um, almost to some extent in the same way that Poe might um, hold a similar position, um, that there are, celebra well not celebrations, but there are memorials when it comes around to his birthday that take place at his gravestone in Providence, for, um, very much in the same similar kind of way that Poe's does. And yeah, he's seen with a very legitimate air and... Yeah, it's almost like a, not a critical benchmark, but definitely there is a recognition of the influence that he's had and what he's spawned. Yeah, definitely. I the fact that yeah his work is now uh, available uh, as part of the Penguin Classics line uh, that the Library of America has published his work. Uh, the fact that there are you know many critical analyses of of his work. I mean, S. D. Joshi has made an entire career out of uh, writing you know analyses and biographies of Lovecraft. Uh, but you know he is taken seriously by academics now. Which, you know, considering that he started, you know, in his lifetime, he would have considered himself as, you know, probably nothing more than a pulp writer whose works would have been forgotten, is just phenomenal. I hazard to think what Lovecraft's reaction to the mythos and the imagery of Cthulhu would be in today's marketplace, where you have the likes of plush Cthulhu because he's also cute and flappy. And, and, and what is the other book that you've backed, Matt? 
the very hungry Cthulhu pillar if the thing ever arrives. <laughs> you can't see yeah. Scott rolling his eyes at this point. Or shaking but, his head. But, but you, you've also you know, ended up backing books that are sort of children's versions of, what, The Shadow of Rinsmith and other things, haven't I you? I think there's three of them that are done by... Um, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, the Easteric Order Press, that's them. They've done The Call of Cthulhu originally... Then they've done, done where the deep ones are. No, that's not them. That's Ken Hyatt. But that, right? yes, that's yeah. a different one. Um, they've done an adaptation of the Dunwich Horror, and they're currently the Kickstarter for the Shadow of Rinsmith has just finished. I think they're planning on doing one other and maybe a collection of short story ones for uh, for kids after that. But I thought if we're going to end up having our own little small cultists, we've got to get them started somewhere. <laughs> but but yeah, you know, I mean, frankly, I think Lovecraft would have fucking hated this. Really, I mean, he wasn't even very keen. I mean, in one of his letters, he talks about uh, going to see the adaptation of the 1931 Todd Browning version of Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, and hating that. You know, thinking that it diminished the original work. He was um, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a bit campy. But, um, yeah, I, you can only imagine what he think. I mean, not just the things like plush Cthulhu's and so on, but, you know, imagine sitting him down in front of a copy of you know, Stuart Gordon's From Beyond. Or the South Park episodes, which feature um, Cartman and Cthulhu. Oh God. oh, God, yes. How fantastic would that be? Uh, and he also, uh, his, his work also crops up in Supernatural, in Scooby-Doo. Yeah. And where would we be, where would Batman be without Arkham Asylum? <laughs> But thinking of his um, views on sex and uh, intercourse and so on, you know, that comment from beyond, yeah, that would be interesting to really think what the hell would happen to the man if he came out of the film. <laughs> I, I think it would only end in an aneurysm. <laughs> <laughs> well, what perhaps we can look at today is that each of the... We've talked about the various subcultures that have taken uh, the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraftian elements, but each one kind of takes it in their own way. And they they take the bits they like, they take the bits that appeal to them. So it might be that they just like tentacles, it might be that they like nihilistic horror. We leave out the things that we don't like. You know, the racism that we see portrayed in, in Lovecraft stories. You know, we don't adopt that part. We, we, we take the Lovecraft that we love. And, that, yeah, as you say, that can be different things. Uh, in one of the documentaries about Lovecraft that I've seen, uh, I can't remember, what, I think it was The Eldritch Influence, uh, but there was a, an anecdote recounted by Neil Gaiman where he talks about seeing a panel uh, at a convention with a number of people talking about what they liked about Lovecraft. And he said that one of the people on the panel was Dave Carson, uh, who did a lot of fantastic Lovecraft illustrations. He did a lot of the artwork for Dagon uh, magazine. Yeah, everyone was sort of giving fairly erudite answers about what they liked, and it came round to Dave Carson, and he says, I just like drawing big fucking monsters. <laughs> There's plenty of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about the Call of Cthulhu RPG, and one thing that I wonder is how much the current popularity of Lovecraft owes to the release of Call of Cthulhu back in the 1980s. The role-playing game. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think massively. Um, I think so many people... I mean, Dungeons & Dragons is 
I don't know if you can call it a household name, but it's you know it's it's, it's well up there. It's, I, it's I a think very most well recognised name at least. Yeah, they, they it might be just their children have played it, or their grandchildren have played it, or their dads have played it. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's more like it. But you know, so most people have heard of D and D. But I would I would hazard a guess that most people or a lot of people that have played D and D. You know, the next tier down of those, a lot of those have heard of Call of Cthulhu. Yes. They may not really know what it is. It's some kind of horror game. Is, is that is that game where everyone goes mad or dies? Yeah. Mm. Um, First one, then the other. And, you know, if you've been to a gaming convention, you, you know, you may well have played it. Because one of the things about Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, is that it lends itself very well to one-offs. So a lot of people do play it at conventions or, or they just play it as a, a relief to their... Um, you know, almost like a, a, a um, during a break between campaigns or something like that, they'll play a few games of Call of Cthulhu. So I think it has touched a lot of role players. But also the fact that it's become a licensed property, the fact that it did bleed over into the Call of Cthulhu fiction line, you know, then the collectible card games, then computer games and so on, I think that then snowballed and introduced a lot of people to Lovecraft who may never have even heard of the tabletop game. And a lot of this is, is down to the fact that Lovecraft's work is in the public domain. So if we were talking about, you know, if we, if we looked at, say, uh, a licensed property like the Star Wars role-playing game... Um, I can't go out and do something, you know, I can't start putting together stuff about Star Wars and, you know, setting something on Endor and so on, because it's all licensed IP. Um, but with Lovecraft stuff, you know, I can do that. Yeah, it can be a bit of a minefield sometimes, because a lot of the elements that people associate with, say, the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game have been drawn from a number of writers. And, you know, w whereas you might be free to draw on your own elements from Lovecraft, as soon as you start drawing on elements from, uh, say, Brian Lumley, then that's a whole different story. Yeah, and some of that stuff belongs to, you know, some of that stuff belongs directly to Cosium and so on. So it's, a, like you say, it's a bit of a minefield, but... You know, if you're just going back to the, the Lovecraft's work, then there's a whole load of stuff there that, you know, different people have drawn on in different ways. But but from the fiction point of view as well, it was the fact that even before his stuff went out of copyright, you know, Lovecraft was very free about sharing his ideas. Mm. But in a lot of ways, you can almost see it as, as almost a precursor of the open source movement in software. The fact that, you know, he did invite people to reuse his ideas and build on them. And, you know, that that is more than anything, I think, what led to their survival. Yeah, because if we, if we parallel it, say, with Tolkien or something like that, we didn't see loads of people writing, um, you know, stories set in Middle-earth. No, I mean, Tolkien was influential in other ways. I mean, you know, every fantasy author after that wanted to write a fucking trilogy, but... Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah. And we can and... see lo 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 lots of likenesses within, say, Thomas Covenant um, series, but... But but they're not directly drawn no, from Tolkien. They're, they're not set in. Yeah, they they they're they're emulating elements of the the style and uh, the approach that Tolkien took. But but yes, they're not. You you could write say Tolkien fan fiction. You know, you could write sure. your own stories as an amateur thing. But there isn't that industry of kind of building and adding and creating this snowballing mythos. From, from my perspective, when it comes to whether it's directly responsible, I'd say that it's definitely a contributing force, but I wouldn't say it's the sole force. Um, there's too much of a 
collective movement in other media that I'd say it can be, um, that you can pin the flag solely and say the RPG is directly responsible for it. Um, the RPG, I'd say, is definitely responsible for in-gaming circles, whether it be board games, card games, dice games. That is the core of where everything started there, and that itself has contributed to get more exposure with the general public that don't necessarily play role-playing games. They might play board games, they might play card games, and so on. That it has accessed more demographics, but all connected with gaming, at least in some form or another. But I, I think one thing that it did as well is it maybe lightened the tone of a lot of it, so that, you know, for example, when you're talking about things like, you know, the Cthulhu plushies or, you know, a lot of the memes that go around on the internet or, you know, funny t-shirts with, you know, Cthulhu on them and stuff like that, I don't think any of those would exist or very few of them would exist without the role-playing game. Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about um, Poe, then, you know, there's an author that was before Lovecraft, yeah, these, uh, the He's been taken into films, he's been taken into, um, you know, comics and so on, in the same way that Lovecraft has, but it doesn't, you know, he's equally or perhaps more famous than Lovecraft, but doesn't have the same spread among the, the kind of modern culture as, as Lovecraft does. The one thing, counterpoint to that, I'd say that's different between Poe and Lovecraft is that Poe was a great storyteller who created wonderfully crafted individual stories. They did not have a collective mythos or collective universe no. that they shared. Yeah. But there, there's a shared gothic tone to them and all, but and you could probably mm. extrapolate some kind of shared setting between a number of them, but it's not there by default. Yeah, there's very... Well, I can't think of any elements that appear in one story and then appear in another, for example. Whereas Lovecraft's incorporation of lots of elements from all these stories is very much something that a modern audience would identify with. It's something that King Stephen King does, for example, in all his stories that seem to be set around Castle Rock, that kind of that fictionalized King country in Maine. And the yeah. say different elements that hook in here, there and everywhere with his different works. It's I think it's something that's a lot more appeals to an audience, especially a fanboy type audience that will go, I recognise that particular line in the mist, that's a devotion that's said to Randall Flagg in the in the stand, for example. Um, there's lots of little hidden Easter eggs. I think audiences of today's world quite like that kind of thing. If, again, if you're this, your kind of thing. Mm. But can you have too much of a good thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a that was a quick discussion. No, I, I, our friend Steve Ellis, who we had on a few episodes ago, posed a question at a convention back in uh, December at Dragon Meat, um, which is, have we reached peak Cthulhu? You know, the the fact that Lovecraft's elements has reached all these different things, the fact that, you know, there are now countless Lovecraftian anthologies and gaming supplements and video games and so on, have we reached the kind of point of oversaturation that we get with, say, you know, for example, zombies? Because I, I don't know about you, I mean, I, I, I was a big George Romero fanboy back in the 70s and 80s. And nowadays, you know, with rare exceptions like The Walking Dead, you know, when I see something coming out that's zombie-related, you know, I, 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 I groan and not, but you're not talking about, about kind you're, of brain. You're, you're talking about just about the top-rated uh, American TV show? But, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think, you know, the, it got to the stage where there were so many low-budget zombie films coming sure. out that, you know, I, I think those are beginning to die out now because of oversaturation. I'd, I'd say more that it's the, um, the shit sinks and the cream rises to the top. That there are... I don't want to drink that cream. <laughs> <laughs> might, be, might be somewhat necrotic. <laughs> <laughs> Is it all in the same pot? 
I've, I've not tasted it, so I wouldn't know. But no, on a more serious note, it's that the good stuff, like Walking Dead, has been successful. But then you compare it with... <laughs> like we we've, cri- we've crippled Scott. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I count that as a win. <laughs> but on, on a serious note, that we can think of a couple of examples of a zombie genre that have been really well, uh, that have been really well received. Yeah, things I mean, like Walking Dead. Yeah, people keep coming up with them. If they reinvent it in an interesting way, that's the thing. And even if you go back to almost where it all started, at least in the modern incarnation of this cycle with Romero, um, you've got the likes of maybe not so much Night of the Living Dead, but Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, where they're almost used as a vehicle for social um, satire. Oh, God, particularly in, in Dawn of the Dead and Diary of the Dead. Yes, very much in no, Diary of the Dead. Well, yeah, no, Diary of the Dead kind of takes a picture, um, kind of takes yeah. a look at the internet culture and yeah, streaming. No, and sorry, there was one in between. The, yeah, anyway, cut. Land of the Dead. Land of the Dead. That was the one I was thinking of. Yes. There's a little bit like the question that's always posed. You know, are we at the peak of the housing market? You know, and, and yeah. I can remember like 12, 15 years ago, people were arguing, "Oh yeah, we're at the peak, and it's going to take a sudden crash." And then, you know, in the, in the following 12 months, houses would go up by 25% or something. It's very hard to see when you're at the peak of something, I think. Um, and with Cthulhu, I mean, yeah, maybe it's going to go into a decline. Maybe, you know, it's done as much as it can. But then again, you know, if Del Toro comes out with that in the Mountains of Madness, I mean, we could, see, we could look back now and think, well, it was only just beginning. That's true. I mean, we haven't seen any big... Lovecraftian films for some time. We haven't seen a Lovecraftian TV series. So I, I guess that question that Steve asked probably applies more to gaming. We see a lot more of the saturation in gaming there than we do in other cultures. In our niche, yeah. yeah, we see a lot of it. But yes, I think Steve might be onto something there that we are approaching a degree of oversaturation in gaming. Yeah, especially where they, there was even a. There was a card game, I believe it was. Um, that had I can't remember the name of it for the life of me. So if if the listener remembers this, and can put it um, put a comment and that would be great. But there is the obligatory Cthulhu expansion, yes. unquote for a particular game. But but I think in general, if you want to see just how saturated this has become, just go to Kickstarter and put you know Cthulhu or Lovecraft in as search terms, and you will see you know an ongoing cycle of projects, pro- and probably a diminishing number of them are funding. Yeah, Matt was just mm-hmm. telling us about about three or four that that hadn't funded recently. Yeah, there's um, up until I'd say over the last twelve months, you could regularly find that there were projects that were being launched. Every every month, every other month, and they were hitting target fairly quickly, and doing getting a fair amount of publicity out there. But ever since I'd say December New Year, there's been a fair few which either haven't funded, haven't got enough backers, so the projects have been pulled. Um, other ones which have crashed and burned, and yeah, there's been a definite. There's fewer projects which are funding. But again, the projects which are funding are drawing in money still, and considerably more than what the funding target is. So maybe the audience is just becoming a little bit more selective. One day, Cthulhu will conquer those damn kittens, though. (laughs) (laughs) Have we reached peak kitten? That's the question. If if I can get a game that gets in more than $8 million based on Cthulhu, I want it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Why is it that people want to emulate Lovecraft so much? Because he rocks. <laughs> because he rocks. Well, Neil Gaiman in, uh, in an interview said that Lovecraft is like rock and roll in a weird way. And I think that's the best answer I've heard. Because you, you read yeah. his stories and, you know, there are so many people that have read his stories that have wanted to recreate. They've wanted to be a part of that world in some way. Um, in the same way that, you know, we've listened to classic rock albums and, you know, it might be the it might be the Beatles, it might be Velvet Underground, it might be whoever. And, you know, you wanted to pick up a guitar and, and play songs or, or join a band. Um, but you can't really pin down and analyse what it is about that music. And it's kind of the same thing with Lovecraft's writing. Is it, you know, is mm. it the style? Is it the, the content? Is it the kind of the vision? I, I, I think it's a combination of all three. I Certainly in interviews uh, that I've seen with Ramsey Campbell, he talks about the fact that, you know, the thing that... That he emulated, uh, you know, as a young writer, was uh, Lovecraft style, and he said, you know, he and I think Gaiman have made the point that that's probably the easiest thing to emulate and probably the least worthwhile thing to emulate. Well, it's easy to emulate, but not very well to do well. Yes. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah, it's easy to do a bad pastiche of Lovecraft. Yeah. Just stick lots of Gibbous and Eldritch in, and you know, surely you're halfway there. <laughs> But I think, you know, one of the things that draws people to Lovecraft um, is the fact that, yeah, I guess it's kind of ironic now, is the fact that at the time he did represent something entirely new. Um, I mean, sure, it was a synthesis of a number of different elements, but he drew them together in a way that was unique to him. And I think, you know, people are drawn to new things like that. But, I mean, the irony comes in the fact that, you know, it's been so much imitated and repeated since then that it's not new. But I think, you know, that that was the initial thing and that's what caused it to become such a phenomenon. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, think, it's, I don't think it's strictly the newness of it. I think it's that Lovecraft latched into what was going to interest people. It was the, uh, it was the kind of, um, you know, divorcing itself from, from the past kind of his, uh, supernatural tropes, the, the kind of ones that were latched into kind of religion and, and, and uh, the importance of humanity. Um, and, you know, the, the coming of the kind of age of science in the yeah. 20th century. And uh, well, well, so, and so, he was yeah. writing about, you know, he, only the other day I was, I was watching that documentary about uh, how the human race has, has come to uh, deal with cold. And one of those things was putting air conditioning into buildings. And that was in 1925 in a theatre in uh, maybe New York. And this was just a couple of years before Lovecraft wrote Cool Air. You know, in the Mountains of Madness, he's writing about fairly cutting-edge stuff. Those those expeditions to Antarctica were taking place at that time. Mm -hmm. And Yogov was, you know, perhaps Pluto, which had just been discovered. So was, if he was writing now, he'd be looking at, you know, the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. And Well, I, I think there's also the element, that the fact that... Um, he was talking about the fragility of mankind and the fact that we can all be wiped away by these forces beyond our understanding shortly before the birth of the nuclear age. Mm. And I think there was a certain resonance there for those of us who grew up in the Cold War that we could sort of see parallels between you know, the great old ones and the power that they represented, their indifference to humanity, but their utter ability to wipe us all away. Uh, the fact and the greenhouse have, effect and, and the, so on. And those, those things that could have wiped us all out, what, what's, what are those still termed? 
in you know even in legal situations acts of god mm. and lovecraft said no they're not acts of god i mean ironically you know we see lovecraft as a 1920s 1930s obviously that was when he was writing but he was very embedded in his modern day if we want to really recreate lovecraft we should be looking at you know how it reflects in our modern day um, and I, you know, I like setting games in, in the modern day. It becomes yeah. more difficult because it was easier to create isolation in the twenties and thirties. It's more, it, 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 you know, you have to be a little more creative to kind of do that in the modern day. But I think it's significant that Lovecraftian fiction, you know, most of the more interesting Lovecraftian fiction tends to be set in the modern day. There's very little fiction that I've read that is period pieces uh, that are emulating, you know, uh, the, the time that Lovecraft wrote. Whereas, you know, that's what we tend to cleave to in the role-playing game. One of the most unlikely things, I think, though, building on this, of Lovecraft's success, of his enduring appeal, is the fact that his worldview, uh, you know, the, the view that's expressed through his stories is so fundamentally dismal and depressing that it is nihilistic. It is a world in which humanity does not matter. It is a world in which we're faced with you know, forces that are beyond our comprehension uh, and which could annihilate us you know, just as soon as we come into contact with it. How does that become such a popular aspect of popular culture. I mean, that, 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 that just seems to be kind of perverse to me. Is it an outlet? Is it a release? I think it's reflecting... I mean, ah. it's reflected... I can think of two things that it kind of reflects. I mean, you know, the Bible, you know, a lot of that is about the kind of you know, the end of days and, and what, what comes after. But um, also, you know, if you think of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it starts with the destruction of the world. You know, I think we are drawn to things that are about the apocalypse. But even then, most apocalyptic uh, stories or ideas are about, you know, humanity in the face of overwhelming odds, triumphing, surviving, etc. Not necessarily triumphing, but, but, though, but, but enduring mostly, it. But mostly, yes. I mean, it is about some kind of triumph of the spirit. Uh, Lovecraft, in a lot of ways, is the polar opposite of that. But... I think that's what we get when we... I think that's what's commonly forgotten, though. Um, and I think you're quite right, Scott. I think in, in most of the games and, and, and so on, it's about vanquishing that. And it's only when you really go back and read Lovecraft that you kind of remember, oh, this is a little different to what, you know, I see everywhere else when they're talking about Lovecraftian stuff. This is actually a lot bleaker. Yeah. He's also one of the uh, first authors I can think of that expanded the canvas of his stories beyond the confines of Earth. Admittedly, um, you've got H.G. Wells that were looked up to Mars, um, maybe the rest of the solar system, but Lovecraft encompassed the universe throughout from the start of time to the end of time. He worked with such a wider spectrum to set his stories in and had such a large, rich, diverse canvas that I think that just sets the imagination ablaze. That honestly, there mm. is so many things to work with, so many, so much vivid imagery. So what if humanity is insignificant in the grand scheme of things? In reality, they are. We are a speck of dust in a one in a huge cosmos. But, yeah, but people on the whole don't like to be reminded of that. Then they're fools and should be awoken to the true nature I, of the world. I, I think a part of them does. Another appeal, I think, of Lovecraft, we, the whole thing of the mythos not being a cohesive whole, means there's lots of gaps that you can kind of put your creative input into. Um, so Lovecraft, you know, he's given us 
some stories which you know vaguely some of them vaguely overlap in overlap in places um, but there's plenty of scope there for us you know sticking another town in there or thinking you know what was Innsmouth like just after the raid or, or just before or lots of space in there for us to to work into or even just echoing the general feel of some of it yeah that we don't necessarily you know th this is what i was saying about laird baron earlier that we don't necessarily have to emulate the names and the places and so on that lovecraft talked of and we can invent our own but still make it feel like lovecraft in that that cosmic horror nihilistic sense it can be about the style, it can be about the content, it can be about the tone of it, it can be about the big monsters. There are so many things that you can latch into, so many aspects that you can latch into. I mean, Matt, you'd mentioned Stephen King and, you know, Castle Rock uh, and so on. Well, it's great. It's kind of one thing. I don't, yeah. feel, I don't feel there's so many gaps in there that I can kind of jump into and do stuff with. Um, yeah, I, fi I find it much harder to write a compelling scenario uh, set around Castle Rock than I would around Arkham, for example. Yeah. Just because all the bits there feel so self-contained and disparate. Mm -hmm. they're, they're good. It, it doesn't feel like there's a unifying tone to it. The way it's good to go, to go to King and read it, but yeah. you know, he he's kind of hasn't you know hasn't written down every detail about it. But it's kind of you know it's all there, and I want to mm -hmm. kind of look at it and read it. But I don't want to. There's there's a few instances of towns that he's devised like that, like Dairy from It crops up in a few other stories. Um, can't remember the one that's in Dolores Claiborne, but that crops up in Storm of the Century. There they are. Def there's definitely a feeling of a community in a wider county, but yeah, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have that spark that Lovecraft does. That it's very much they are individual moments that are recorded as happening in similar places. Having explored in quite some detail, I think probably more than we originally were considering for, for this episode. Oh, jeez, it's my back and my feet are killing me at the moment. Tell me about it. My back is very painful at this moment in time. Um, See how I'd, we suffer for you, listener. <laughs> I'd ask the question, if you've played the games but haven't read any Lovecraft, where do you start? Yeah, I mean, that's... <sighs> That's something I see crop up on forums and on places like Reddit quite often, that I think people assume, because they've encountered this from other writers, that there is a sort of chronology to Lovecraft's work, and it's sort of, you know, it won't make sense to read The Shadow of Rensmith unless you've read The Call of Cthulhu first, or something like that. I mean, the first thing to say is, yeah, that's not true. Yeah, there, there is no order you've got to read these in. Each, while they all contribute to an overall, you know, feel and and world, and while they all share elements, there is no chronology to them. You can read them in any order, and it won't matter. What I would say, however, is that some stories are very much better than others. Lovecraft, like all writers, learnt his craft as he went on, and his earlier stories are, in a lot of cases, simply not very good. Yeah, I wouldn't just get the collection and start at the beginning and read them in chronological order. I think you'll find a lot there that, yeah, you know, they're okay, but... You wouldn't necessarily great. get through to the end if you were looking for consistent quality. Yeah, yeah. start off with a few ones that... I mean, there's a list in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game of the ones that are recommended, the ones that we could recommend, the Call of Cthulhu, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend The Call of Cthulhu as a first story, because for the reasons we've mentioned, it's structurally a very strange piece. 
Well, I think if you're looking for a good introductory story, the two that I'd recommend above all else, The Shadow of Rinsmith, I think, you know, is a it's a good romp in Definitely, places. Yeah. It's got some some strange horror elements in it. It's it's an unusual story. Um, and the other one, though, it's it's got less of a kind of driving narrative to it. Uh, the, what I think is Lovecraft's best written story is The Color Out of Space. And a couple of short ones I'd recommend. You know, just if you just want a, a quick tale that you can read through pretty quickly, uh, The Outsider. Oh God, yes. Mm -hmm. And Pickman's Model. Yeah. Whereas for me, um, I'd go with more thematic choices, but then ones that hint at the wider uh, aspect of the mythos and ones we've looked at previously. Uh, Dreams in the Witch House definitely um, opens up very large portions of the mythos and the wider cosmology. And Rats in the Walls, purely for the, the thematic, kind of the atmosphere that it builds. Yeah, it's also a very good story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. We've gone from uh, Lovecraft's birth up to today and you know, tried to have a look at what might be... Well, we haven't really explored what might be coming up. Um, we kind of discussed because, because where we are today. Because we're not fucking Well, we might have some, well, you know... So, sorry, Matt and, Matt and I aren't Yithians. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to call Yogg Sothoth and ask him for an insight. Please so. go up on the hill outside. And... <laughs> that explains so much about Buckingham. <laughs> the Buckingham look. <laughs> but we hope that's been of use to I mean I'm sure there are a lot of listeners that, that knew all this stuff already um, but um, hopefully those of you that have played the game a few times but maybe didn't know some of this stuff hopefully we've been able to uh, point you in the right direction that you can go and find out more uh, hopefully we'll have a very long blog article from you about this Scott or of, uh, of links and so forth because uh, Scott tends <laughs> to write our our blog posts for the episodes yeah but i don't listen to them <laughs> okay i'll jot down the links as i edit it yeah and send them to you <laughs> thank you do please don't make me listen to the shit <laughs> remember it sinks <laughs> as we found while putting together the structure for this episode there was a lot of things that we could say about certain topics if there's any particular topic or any particular theme that's come up in the course of the episode that you'd like us to explore in more depth then please let us know we'd like to know what you guys like and guys and girls like to listen to yep we're on social media we're on blasphemoustomes.com yep uh come and leave messages there and we will almost certainly read them and a big thanks to everybody who's stuck with us through 50 episodes yeah, you can make your sand check now. <laughs> Double zero. <laughs> we'll start planning episode 100 soon. What's this we? <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com Thanks for listening. That wraps it up for another episode. Happy 50th, everybody. It's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com
Tell us more about the tasty cream, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Spicy cream. <laughs>